records five of Jesus' sermons. Now certainly Jesus preached more than five, but five are recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. Since the point of Matthew's Gospel narrative is to present Jesus as the Messianic King, each of Jesus' sermons that he records surrounds the nature of the kingdom. In the Sermon on the Mount, for example, in Matthew chapter 5, 1 to 7, 29, Jesus addresses genuine disciples living as kingdom citizens. And in that first recorded sermon, Jesus set forth for us the character, the conduct, the commands, and the choices we make as kingdom citizens. In his second sermon, the Sermon for Kingdom Servants, recorded in Matthew 10, 1 through 11, 1, Jesus reveals to his disciples and to us that we must carry on not only as kingdom citizens, but kingdom servants. We are citizens, we are also servants. And as servants, we continue with the mission and ministry of our king. And that sermon, the sermon for kingdom servants, laid out various principles for every generation of disciples. And those principles not only equip us, but enable us to train up the next generation of disciples. In the third sermon, the sermon about the kingdom, Matthew 13, 1-53, Jesus addresses questions about the kingdom itself. Specifically, he explains what will happen to the kingdom now that the king has been rejected. You'll recall that uh, Israel rejected the king and the establishment of the physical kingdom on earth. Now, he explains what is happening to the kingdom now that the king has been rejected. He uses eight parables to reveal the mysteries or the sacred secrets of the kingdom that have been hidden from humanity since eternity past. And while the physical kingdom on earth is on hold, the spiritual aspect of the kingdom is still very much at hand in this present age. These eight parables that we examined revealed to us the inauguration of the kingdom, the opposition to the kingdom, the people of the kingdom, and the judgment of the kingdom that will close out this present age. Now we come to the fourth recorded sermon. We call this the Sermon about Kingdom Values. The Sermon about Kingdom Values. Matthew chapter 18, 1 through 19, 1. Now the thrust of this sermon is to teach you and I as disciples five fundamental values that must be present in each of us as kingdom citizens. Five fundamental values that must be evident in our life as kingdom citizens. These values are critical to the kingdom community because they govern relationships between kingdom citizens. Teaching these values is necessary because as the disciples, they assumed, and maybe like us too, we assume, that God's kingdom is no different from the kingdoms of this world. But the world's kingdom and God's kingdom are vastly different. The world's kingdoms are status-driven, whereas God's kingdom is to be service-driven. You see, the world values rank and status and power and authority. God's kingdom, however, values humility, guarding against sin, pursuing the lost, discipline, and forgiveness. 
These values have seemingly been lost by so many believers today. Humility, compassion, discipline, forgiveness are sorely lacking in the church of God today. Believers seemingly cannot get along with one another. There's an old Scottish poem that captures this difficulty oh so well. It says, to live above with the saints we love will certainly be glory. To live below with the saints we know, well that's another story. Great truth there. Let me ask you some questions. How many of you pride yourself on your supposed faithfulness to the Lord? How many of you lack compassion for those hurting or suffering and make excuse for your lack of empathy? How many of you care less about your fellow believers who have given up faithfully gathering with their fellow believers? How many of you hold grudges against your fellow believers? Now you need to answer those questions before yourself and a holy God. But I'm fearful that many, instead of answering those questions honestly, will make excuses for their answer, or instead shift the blame for their behavior. Nonetheless, the kingdom values presented here in Matthew 18 must be recovered and they must be embraced. We've got to examine ourselves in light of this text. And the first value that we need to recover and embrace is the value of humility as presented here in Matthew 18, 1-4. Matthew 18, 1-4. Here Jesus reveals that both entrance into the kingdom and greatness in the kingdom are conditioned upon the value of humility. The value of humility. Now Jesus posits here in Matthew 18 verses 1 to 4 that entrance into God's kingdom demands humility. Read, follow with me as we read here, chapter 18, we're going to read verses 1, 2, 3 and the first part of verse 4. At that time the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child. We're going to pause there. We need to begin here by noting that entrance into God's kingdom demands humility. Again, entrance into God's kingdom demands humility. Notice that Matthew begins his record of Jesus' sermon with a temporal marker at that time. What time? Well, the term time, hurrah, is used to mark a specific hour of the day. In order to determine the specific hour or day of Jesus' sermon, let's consider the larger context. Go back to chapter 17, verse 24. Matthew 17, 24 says what? They came to Capernaum. That is, Jesus and the disciples returned to Capernaum in Galilee. And we know from previous studies that Capernaum served as the base for Jesus' Galilean ministry. Look at verse 25 of Matthew 17. When they came into the house, Jesus spoke to Peter first. And again, we have previously established that Peter's house was their base of operation. Jesus usually stayed at Peter's house when in Capernaum. The fact that he speaks first to Peter upon entering the house implies more so that the house belongs to who? Peter. 
If it was Andrew's house, he'd have spoke to Andrew. If it was John's house, he'd have spoke to John first. He speaks to Peter first. Because it's Peter's house that they have entered into. Now notice the next thing we have here. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus. Okay? So, at that time refers to the hour when they entered Peter's house and the disciples come to Jesus with a question. Okay? Now notice, chapter 17 ends with Jesus asking Peter a question. Chapter 18 begins with the disciples asking Jesus a question. And undoubtedly, we're going to see these men had a self-seeking spirit. What's their question? Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? These are self-seeking individuals. And many believers today suffer from the same malady. Who's going to be the best? Who's number one? Who's the greatest? Who do you like the most? The fact that the disciples came to Jesus, though, we must give them credit for. Because it implies that while they were self-seeking, they were still seeking knowledge. And while their question may have been influenced by selfishness, there's still a degree of spiritual maturity here on their part because they came to Jesus. You know, believers, we all struggle with sin. Even as we grow in Christ, we struggle with sin. Nonetheless, even if we're struggling with sin, we must still come to Jesus for learning and leading. Despite the various sins in which you and I may stumble, a failure to desire instruction from our master teacher would demonstrate a spiritual heart problem on our part. If you're sinning and you've got no desire to seek Jesus, you've got a spiritual heart problem that you should be aware of. Remember Jesus revealed in Matthew chapter 13 that genuine believers have spiritual eyes and spiritual ears to discern spiritual things. And if you lack spiritual ears and you lack spiritual eyes, he says you suffer from hard-heartedness. And we ought to be concerned if we're suffering from hard-heartedness because spiritual hard-heartedness means that we are possibly what? Unregenerate. So yes, believer, we sin. We struggle with sin. But because the Spirit of God is within us, we're still going to want to come to Jesus. And that's just what they're doing here. Now I want to take a moment to go to the Gospels of Luke and Mark the gospel records of Luke and Mark, because they're going to provide some contextual information behind the question that I think we need to know. Let's go to Luke 9 and verse 46 first. Luke 9 and verse 46. And then from there we'll go to Mark 9. So Luke 9 and Mark 9. Now Luke 9, the context is the same, it's the same situation but it picks up while they're on their way to Capernaum. Okay, so we find out the conversation going on. Verse 46 says, An argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. Okay, so their question here in Matthew 18 just didn't pop up. They had been arguing about this on the journey back to Capernaum. 
Now the term greatest, megas, refers to immensity and stature or rank or important. Who amongst us is the most important to you, Jesus? Who's going to be the most important in your kingdom? Now I have to say that in the Jewish culture, much like our culture today, they were obsessed with status and rank. In fact, we see this in Luke chapter 14 and verse 7, where Jesus began speaking a parable to them, to the invited guests, when he noticed they were all too busy picking out places of honor at the table. Imagine Jesus up there speaking, but they're ignoring him because they're jockeying for the best seat at the table. You know, with all that Jesus has revealed to them thus far about the kingdom, about citizenship in the kingdom, about service in the kingdom, the overarching debate amongst the disciples was who was more important in the kingdom. And like so many of us today, they are more interested in stature and in status rather than in service. Does that describe you? Are you more interested in status in the church or your stature in the church or in service in the church? Which is more important to you? Far too many believers today are not interested in serving one another. They're more concerned about who serves or what serves them best. What's convenient for me, not what's best for everybody. Believers, I challenge you to consider... Examine yourselves as to whether your focus is on serving others or you being served. Now before we move to Mark 9, I want to highlight two events in Matthew 17 that I believe led to the argument recorded in Luke 9. And the two events are this, the transfiguration and the demon-possessed boy. Now of the twelve, only three got invited, got an invitation to the transfiguration. Peter, James, and John. The other nine sat at home. And while the other nine are at home, a man brought his demon-possessed child, and the nine could not cast a demon out of the child. And I have no doubt that these two events created the tension, the argument between the twelve. Because here comes Peter, James, and John boasting about what they've seen, about their privileged position, while the other nine are bemoaning their inability to heal the demon-possessed boy. And you can imagine the issue that was beginning to brew. Who's the greatest? Who's the best? And I'm sure Peter, James, and John had no problem telling everybody that they were number one. They'd seen Moses. They'd seen Elijah. They saw the glorified Messiah. Listen, James and John thought their stuff was pretty spectacular. So much so, they got their mother, Jesus' aunt, to go to Jesus one day and say, Jesus, where are my two boys going to sit in your kingdom? Let, make sure that one's on your right and one's on your left. They even got their own mother jockeying for their position of who's the greatest. No wonder they were having arguments. Mark 9, verse 33 to 34. Mark 9, 33 to 34. It says, they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, Peter's house, he began to question them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. I'll bet they did. For on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Now I find it's always fascinating how four 
authors can record the same information from different perspectives. Okay? I mean, Matthew just gets right to the heart of the matter. He doesn't even touch on the debate. He just gets right to the question. Who's the greatest? Okay? Because he's focused on one thing. Luke, he gives us more details. Hey, well, these guys were having an argument on the way. But then Mark, he kind of presents it in a different light because he's given us Peter's point of view. Mark's gospel, by the way, is Peter's gospel. Okay? Uh, Mark was a child at the time these events were going on. He was not an eyewitness of these things. Peter was. And you'll recall from 1 Peter that Peter mentions Mark. Mark was uh, his personal writer. Uh, he wrote Peter's epistles for him. And historically, church history tells us that Peter was the actual author. Mark penned it and delivered it. That's why it bears Mark's name. But it's really Peter's. So now with Peter in mind, Peter says, we came to Capernaum, and when Jesus was in the house, he began to question us what we were discussing, but we kept our mouths shut. For on the way, we were discussing with one another which of, which of us was the greatest. Now notice, though, Luke, he, gets, he tells them they were arguing. Peter, well, we weren't really arguing. We were having a discussion. Isn't it always amazing? You know, you get two people, oh, we weren't arguing. Well, you know what? We were having a, a fierce discussion, but it wasn't an argument. Everybody else says, man, that's an argument. Okay. So perspective is always a fascinating thing in the Gospels here. But this was an ongoing debate on the way to Capernaum by the disciples. They weren't talking about this with Jesus, but he was omnisciently aware. He knew what they were talking about, and now he asks, what were you talking about? And dead silence. You know, when you catch your kids in the middle of something, you know, or ladies, you catch your husband, and all of a sudden, hon, what are you doing? I'm not, I'm not doing anything. Yeah, okay. You know, you're all familiar. Well, that's what happens to the disciples. Until finally, most likely Peter, because he was usually a spokesperson, well, we want to know who's the greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus is about to use their private conversation as a public teaching moment. Isn't that comforting? But again, if you've raised children, you're familiar with this, Okay. The firstborn becomes the parable for the second and third born. Okay? You know, what you as the firstborn do becomes the example for everybody else what not to do. So by the time you get to the last child, he never gets in trouble, supposedly because he knows how to run under the radar. That's really the truth of the matter. Well, he, well, he learned from his older brothers what not to do. Now, he just runs under the radar better. Okay? But nonetheless, that's what Jesus is doing here. He's going to use what they thought was private... <laughs> to teach them publicly how to behave as disciples, what things to value as disciples in the kingdom. So responding to their question, Jesus does what? He called a child to himself and set him before them. Now the term child here is pation. It means a child below puberty, okay, but most likely a toddler. Okay, This term child most commonly is translated as toddler. A three or four year old. So there's a three or four year old in the house. Now I need you to stop and think for a moment. Put on your sanctified imagination with me. They've walked into Peter's house. Whose child is in this house? I mean, it's not some stranger's child just wandered in the door. Hi. It's Peter's child. Okay. We know Peter was married. How do you know he's married? Because his mother in law lived with him. We won't comment. 
But he had a wife, he had a mother-in-law. There's a child in the house. Whose child's going to be in the house? Peter's. This is Peter's child. Now, because it's a toddler, a toddler, what do we know about toddlers? Well, they can't care for themselves. They can't defend themselves. And though the child is young as a toddler, this child is old enough to do what, though? Respond when Jesus calls. If you're still there in Mark 9, I want to read verse 36. Mark 9, 36 says, uh, Mark says this, Taking the child in his arms, Jesus spoke to them. So he not only called this child, but then he took the child up in his arms. And that verb taking tells us that he embraced this child. He placed his arms around this child. So he's got this child, he's called the child, Peter's child, to him. Okay. He's picked Peter's child up. He's sitting there. He's got the child wrapped in his arms on his lap, embracing the child. And in doing so, Jesus demonstrates to us his care for those unable to care for or defend themselves. And we're going to see throughout this fourth sermon that Jesus is going to repeatedly compare us as, as disciples and the, the disciples themselves to children. Every one of these values, he's speaking to us as children. We're children of God. And indeed, like children, like toddlers, Christian, you and I are unable to care for and defend ourselves in a world hostile against us. Nevertheless, Jesus cares for and defends each and every one of us. Now notice the text, Matthew. going back to Matthew. Matthew says he called. Proskaleo. He called the child. It's in the middle voice. And that's important because what it tells us is Jesus called this child to himself. But he didn't just call the child to himself. He called authoritatively to the child. He summoned this child to himself. And this summoning was a divine calling. It wasn't just, hey, hey guy, come here. Hey little girl, come here. This was a divine calling. Let me show you why it's a divine calling. Let's go over to the book of Acts. We'll start in Acts chapter 13. We're going to look at Acts 13 and Acts 16 for a moment. And I'm going to show you two examples of the same verb called proskaleo and how that verb is also used there in the middle voice, spoken by God in both occasions, and it initiates a divine call. Okay? Acts chapter 13 and Acts chapter 16. Got the same verbs going to be used in both verses. We'll start in Acts chapter 13 and verse 2. It says, The Holy Spirit said, so God speaking, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have what? Called them. Proskaleo. All right. Jump over to Acts chapter 16 and verse 10. Now in Acts chapter 16, Paul is speaking and he's disclosing something that had happened. He says in verse 10, Acts 16 and verse 10, God has called Proskaleo them to preach the gospel. In both 13.2 and 16.10 of the book of Acts, the verb called Proskaleo is in the middle voice, meaning God is calling to himself, summoning these individuals to himself for a divine purpose. And so when Jesus back in Matthew chapter 18 
calls this child, calls Peter's child to himself. He is summoning this child with a divine calling. He has a divine purpose for this child. Now in Acts, God's purpose in calling Barnabas and Paul and others, the divine purpose was to preach the gospel. Here in Matthew 18, Jesus summons this child to himself for the divine purpose of teaching a spiritual lesson to the disciples. In essence, this child was a living parable to symbolize what discipleship involves. And every one of the values that we're going to see throughout Matthew 18 are going to tie back to this child. The child sits on his lap through the entire sermon. And every value ties back to a child. And so with the child in his arms, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Notice that phrase, truly I say to you, there in Matthew 18, 1 and 4. Listen closely, is what he's saying. What he's about to say is of the utmost importance to the fellowship of believers. Also, notice that word, truly. Truly, I say. It conveys authority. The word truly, the Greek word amen, which from which we get our term amen or amen, implies that what he says is true. What Jesus is about to preach is true. It is trustworthy. Now what's interesting, Jesus and the disciples are Hebrew. So interestingly enough, the word amen in Hebrew was used to bind an oath. To make something not only true, but to make it binding. So when Jesus says, truly I say to you, Unless you're converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. What he's saying is, this statement is true and it is binding. Friend, there is no wiggle room whatsoever. There is absolutely no loophole for entrance into God's kingdom. This is the only way. Notice he says, unless you are converted and become like children. The word unless, may, it's a negative particle. What it, when you have a negative particle there, like unless, okay, it tells us there is a conditional statement following. There's something conditional about to be said, and Jesus gives us two conditions. Who wants to enter the kingdom of heaven? All right, everybody's going to raise their hand. Every child says, yeah, I want to go. Jesus says, okay, great, there's two conditions. Be converted and become like children. Now what does it mean to enter the kingdom of heaven? Matthew uses the phrase four times in the gospel. Chapter 7 verse 21, chapter 18 verse 3, chapter 19 verse 23, and chapter 19 verse 24. Each time he uses the phrase, he's referring to salvation. So here's two conditions for salvation. Be converted and become like children. Now the fact that people need to enter the kingdom of heaven tells us that they're not already there, are we? No. See, when we're born by physical birth, we're part of Satan's kingdom of darkness. That's why we need to be redeemed. We need to be purchased out of that, uh, out of that kingdom and adopted into God's kingdom. But that only comes by conversion and becoming like children. Notice that first, one must be converted to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now the Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament defines the verb converted, which is strepho, strepho, this way. It says, converted means to change one's ways, to turn to God, to repent. So unless you are repentant 
and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So the next time someone tells you you don't need to confess your sins, you don't need to repent of your sin, in order to be saved, you take them right here and tell them, well, what do you do with Jesus' word? When he says, unless you repent, you're not entering the kingdom of heaven. Now, the fact that repentance was necessary for entrance into the kingdom was not new. The Jewish understanding of repentance is based on the Hebrew word sub, S-U-B, sub, which means to turn away from sin and return to God. We see this word used in Deuteronomy 30 verse 2. Moses says, when you return, when you sub to the Lord your God and obey Him with all your heart and soul according to all that I commanded you, then the Lord your God will restore you. Moses is telling the people that God will restore them when they return, when they sub, when they repent. And notice there that their repentance is demonstrated by what? Obedience. You return and what? Obey God with all your heart and soul. See, if you've got repentance without obedience, it's not genuine repentance, is it? It can be remorse, empty remorse, but it's not genuine repentance. Because genuine repentance produces what? Obedience to God's law. Back in the sermon of the, about the kingdom in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus quoted Isaiah 6.10. Render the hearts of this people insensitive. Their ears are dull, their eyes are dim. Otherwise they would see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and return, sub, repent and be healed. He says they, they haven't repented because their eyes and, are dim and their ears are dull. Some people are just incapable. And the idea that you must repent in order to have your sins forgiven was a concept well understood in the first century by the rabbis. George Moore explains the rabbis' view of repentance. He says this, The rabbis said this, For sin there was but one remedy, the forgiving grace of God. And the conditio sine qua non of forgiveness was repentance. That is contrition, confession, reparation of injuries to others, and a reformation of conduct undertaken and persisted in with sincere purpose and out of religious motives. They got it. They understood what repentance was. Whether they did it or not is a different story. But they knew what repentance theologically was. As the Day of Atonement approached, all Jewish people would repent of their sins every year and go and be baptized as an outward uh, testimony of their repentance. And so when Matthew introduces us to John the baptizer, he provides no explanation. He simply says in Matthew 3, 6, the people were being baptized by John in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. The Jewish people rightly understood the need for repentance followed by baptism. Now I want you to notice though in verse 2 the message John preached. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And when the religious leaders came and requested John to baptize them, he refused, saying in verse 7 of Matthew 3, Show me your fruit in keeping with repentance. Their repentance wasn't real, wasn't genuine. There was no obedience to God's law. Jesus continued to declare the same message. Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent for the kingdom of God, where the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see it again in Mark 1, 14 and 15. The apostles continued preaching the same message. Acts 2, 38. Peter declared, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. In Acts 3.19, Peter declares again, Repent and return so that your sin may be wiped away. 
When Cornelius and the other Gentiles repented of their sin, in Acts 11.18, the Jerusalem church glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. Flash forward to Acts chapter 17 in his sermon at Mars Hill. Paul announces that God is declaring to all men that all people everywhere should repent. Before departing from Ephesus, Paul rehearsed in Acts chapter 20 and verse 21 how he testified to Jews and Gentiles of repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. You've got to repent of your sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ who is the Son of God who died for your sin to cover your sin with His shed blood who then was, died and was buried but then the third day rose again. Repentance and faith. And notice not only that they should repent or excuse me, when he stood before King Agrippa in Acts 26.20 he said, I preach to the Jews and Gentiles that they need to repent and turn to God. Performing deeds appropriate to repentance. How do you know how do you, how do you know the repentance is genuine? Well, if they produce deeds of repentance, what are that? Obedience to the law. Now Jesus goes on and says, not only must you repent to enter the kingdom of heaven, but now you must become like children. He focuses to that child on his lap. You must become. That word become, ginomai, means to change. To enter into a new state of being. You're to be children. Again, the same term, potion. You need to be a toddler. You need to be unable to care for or defend yourself. In other words, if you genuinely repent it, you're not going to be arrogant, but humble. And that children are humble is set forth in verse 4. Whoever then humbles himself as a child. That verb humbles. Tepinao. Does not mean to despise yourself or disregard yourself. But it means to bring yourself low. To bring yourself into a lower condition. To take on a posture of subordination or submission to someone else. That someone else is Jesus Christ the Lord. Regarding the idea of humility, William MacDonald says a genuine humility comes from association with the Lord Jesus. Humility makes us conscious of our nothingness. It enables us to esteem others better than ourselves. It is the opposite of conceit and arrogance. A cognate term for humble is the word poor. Patokas. Patokas. It denotes someone who possesses little or who has poor or little ability. Indeed, a small child has little in terms of means or ability. They're totally dependent upon another to provide for and protect them. And as such, a child is unassuming, a child is unpretentious, a child, a little toddler, willingly submits themselves to those who care for them. Alluding to Proverbs 3.34, James 4.6 said, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I think it's interesting there, the Greek term for humble, which is our word, tapenao, renders the Hebrew term ana, in Proverbs 3.34, which means afflicted, or to be in a humble position. Remember the words of Ephesians 2.8, By grace you have been saved through faith. I want you to understand that is true, but Proverbs 3.34 is also clear that God is opposed to the proud and only gives grace to the humble. He does not give grace to the proud. He does not give grace to the arrogant. He does not give grace to the conceited. Therefore, if you've been saved by grace through faith, you must have first what? 
humbled yourself. Because God can't give grace for salvation to the proud, the arrogant, or the conceited. He only gives it to the humble. Humility begins with what? A confession of your sin. Along with a realization of your unworthiness in receiving God's grace. My friends, we only receive God's grace when we humble ourselves and confess our sin. Now, following repentance, we must become, we must get, oh my, we must change into something other than our proud, arrogant, conceited old man. You know, we need to humble ourselves. We need to be willingly submitting ourselves to our Heavenly Father as a child willingly submits to his or her earthly father or mother. This is a form of self-denial, which Jesus says, if anyone wishes to come after me, deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Entrance into God's kingdom is dependent upon you and I embracing childlike humility. Humbling ourselves to admit we're wrong, we sinned, we're helpless, we're needy. The disciples here were so concerned about greatness in the kingdom when they first should have been concerned as to whether or not they were in the kingdom in the first place. Each and every one of us needs to ask ourselves whether we're in the kingdom. Have we come to God in humble repentance? Let's go back to Matthew chapter 18 and read verse 4. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now back in Matthew 5.19, Jesus said, Whoever keeps and teaches God's law will be called the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now here in Matthew 18.4, Jesus posits that greatness in God's kingdom also demands humility. Greatness in God's kingdom demands humility. So along with obedience to God's law and teaching others to obey God's law, greatness in the kingdom is accomplished by humility. Notice whoever then, un. This is this, that little then tells us that the principle of verse 3, you must humble yourself like a child, become childlike, is the answer to the question, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? The greatest in the kingdom is the one who humbles himself as a child. So the condition for entrance into the kingdom is the same condition for kingdom greatness. By the way, it's interesting. The Aramaic term for child is the same term translated as servant. Isn't that interesting? The means to greatness in God's kingdom involves being childlike, but it also involves service to the king and his constituents. You know, in Pharisaical Judaism, humility was expressed in terms of greatness. The sages, the rabbinic sages, anytime they would talk about greatness they would, or, or humility, they would begin with who's the greatest. And they would set forth those who the world determined as great, as examples to follow. But Jesus does just the opposite. He sets forth a child who in the Jewish culture had little importance and, no, and nobody reverenced. He set before them not a great man, but a defenseless, powerless, helpless, dependent child as the example to follow. My friends, greatness in God's kingdom is only going to be achieved when you recognize your powerlessness, your helplessness, and your total dependence on the Father and commit to serving Him and others. Matthew 20, 26, 27, whoever wishes to become great among you must first, will be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must first be your slave. You want to be great in God's kingdom? Humble yourself and become a servant. This is what Jesus did. John 13, 13 to 15 tells us that Jesus went and washed his disciples' feet. 
He did it as an example of what they ought to do to one another. We need to humble ourselves and serve one another. Jesus humbled himself, placed himself in the position of a servant to serve others. How are you serving your brothers and sisters in Christ? My friends, we ought to be daily putting on and clothing ourselves in humility. Colossians 3.12 says, Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, and humility. Peter says in 1 Peter 5.5, Clothe yourselves with humility. That word put on means to be filled with humility. The word clothed means to enter into a state of humility. And these are imperatives. You and I, believer, don't have a choice about this. We must be endowed. We must be clothed with humility. We must be filled with humility. And my friends, this is only going to come when we start comparing ourselves to God. And stop comparing ourselves with everybody else. And by the way, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking less about yourself. We need to start thinking more about God and more about others than ourselves. We're called to serve. We're called to serve one another. But we're to do it with humility. In Philippians 2, excuse me, Acts 20 verse 19, Paul said that he served the Lord with all humility. In Philippians 2, 3-4, he admonished us, do nothing out of selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility regard one another more important than yourself. Look around this room. Do you regard everybody else in this room more important than yourself? Oh, absolutely, Pastor. Listen, come on, let's be honest. Okay? Let's be honest. By nature, we take care of number one first. Well, I'm not going to do that. That's not convenient for me. Oh, that's fine, but what about everybody else? He goes on to say, regard one another more important than yourself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but for the interest of others. Listen, there is a lack of humility in Christendom today. What we find is is, is a desire for self-aggrandizement amongst those serving Christ. Listen, if you're serving to take care of yourself, if you're serving to uh, bring attention to yourself, I got news for you. You might be serving, you're not serving the Lord, and you're certainly not doing it in humility. You want to do it in humility? Think of others first. Think of them as more important than yourself, and look out for their interests first. Peter took this to heart. He says in 1 Peter 5, 6, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so He can exalt you at the proper time. Peter's reference here about humility under the mighty hand of God refers to God's sovereign control. Remember, Peter's readers were what? Scattered in suffering persecution. Nevertheless, all that was under God's sovereign control. Nothing happens to you and I, my friend, that God does not directly cause or indirectly allow. And therefore, we need to humble ourselves under God's sovereign control. How often, though, do we try to do the opposite, that we try to control the situation, we try to manipulate the situation to make it more favorable for us. Friend, if you're guilty of employing worldly tactics, if you're trying to manipulate or uh, control the situation so you can escape God's sovereign plan for your life, I challenge you to repent and humble yourself. James says in chapter 4 and verse 10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and He'll exalt you. Notice there, we're to humble ourselves in God's presence. What does that mean? Well, Isaiah teaches us what it means. 
when he stood there in the presence of God, he said, Woe is me, I am ruined, I am a man of unclean lips, I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You see, when you're in God's presence, there is no place for arrogance, pride, or conceit. And as such, then, humbling ourselves in God's presence means we recognize our spiritual poverty, we acknowledge our need for divine help, and we submit to God's command. Now let me ask you, do you think there's anywhere you can go where you're not going to be in God's presence? David said, no. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. Psalm 139, 7 8. There is nowhere you and I can go to escape God's presence. And therefore it behooves us to humble ourselves continually before God. He says, if you humble yourself as this child, you will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? What does it truly mean to be great in the kingdom of heaven? Matthew 23, 12, Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. Whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. And that's exactly what Peter said in 1 Peter 5, 6 and what James said in James 4, verse 10. If you'll humble yourself, God will exalt you. What it means that God will exalt you is He will make you prosperous. He will raise you up to a place of honor or dignity in His kingdom. But the only people being honored in His kingdom, the only people being given a place of honor or dignity in His kingdom are those who humble themselves in this life. Only the humble will be honored. And the humble are those who willingly submit themselves to the care of their heavenly Father and eagerly obey what He commands. You see, the world wants you to scheme and maneuver and step on and over everybody in your way. But greatness in God's kingdom is not going to be achieved that way. Jesus is clear that kingdom greatness only comes through the childlike quality of humility, demonstrated in service to others. The world encourages self-importance. Christ promotes humility and service. And therefore, believer, we must examine ourselves and consider whether we're humble and whether we're serving others. Philippians 2.5, have this attitude in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. What attitude did Jesus have? Verse 8 of Philippians 2, he humbled himself. He humbled himself. He placed himself in a lower or inferior position. He set aside the glories of heaven and became a human creature so that he could redeem you and me from eternal death and damnation in the lake of fire. But I love Philippians 2.9, for this reason God also highly exalted him. Jesus humbled himself in his earthly life. God the Father exalted him in his heavenly one. And so he'll do the same for each and every one of us. Jesus has given us two lessons about the value of humility. Both entrance in the kingdom and greatness in the kingdom demand humility. Friends, we have been commanded here to be humble to be unconcerned with our social standing in this world, to be childlike, to depend wholly on our Heavenly Father, to serve others. And sadly, I'm afraid that too many believers are not childlike, but are just downright childish. We're to be childlike, not childish. Have you argued over petty issues? You're childish. Have you demanded things be your way? You're childish. Have you displayed a lousy attitude when not getting your way? You're childish. Those actions are rooted and attitudes are rooted in humility, not in humility, 
but in pride and arrogance and conceit. Believer, you ought not be known for such things. Follow the example of Christ and humble yourself. Be humble in difficult circumstances. Be humble with difficult people. You'll have plenty of opportunity to practice humility. Relationship within God's kingdom, currently the church, depends on humility. As Paul says in Ephesians 4.2, With all humility, gentleness, and patience, show tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let's pray. Gracious Father, our Lord and our King, the Great One. Indeed, Lord, You are the One who is great. And we come to You through our great Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. Father, we want to declare that You are great, that You are worthy of our worship and our praise. But Father, we must also confess that we are a proud and arrogant and conceited people. And so we ask for Your forgiveness. We repent and we humble ourselves before you. Lord, we come to you in humility and thankful that, Father, you never turn us away from yourself but always receive us with open arms because you're a good, loving Father. Lord, I pray that as we grow, we would grow in humility, that we'd follow the example of your Son, willing to serve one another, even when it means getting our hands dirty. That, Father God, you would give us a heart of humility, of childlike wonder, of childlike faith and trust in you. But Father, keep us from being childish. Keep us from wanting our way. Keep us from our lousy attitudes. And help us always to be like Jesus. Father, I pray that as we go forth from this place, we will go forth with renewed interest, with renewed with a renewed uh, sense of childlike humility, that, Father, we would go forth desiring not to be great, but desiring to be a servant, and that we would look for ways to serve you and serve one another. May we continue to serve you. May you continue to be glorified both now and forever until you come again for us. We pray and say, Amen.